Well, good morning. We honor God who is worthy of eternal glory for His great mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for this privilege, especially to be with you today here at Spring Lake. It's always, always a blessing and a privilege to be with you. And uh, we especially are grateful for the opportunity to come and preach the Word together with you to be able to... Uh, fellowship, appreciated the Sunday school lesson this morning from Brother Paul, appreciated the special music. Sister Becky commented as we were fellowshipping there in the greeting time that uh, she loves that song, Redeeming Love. I think it's one of my favorite, especially at Christmas season. It seems like it's not heard as often at the Christmas season as I'd like to hear it because it is a great, great song of testimony to our Lord Jesus and His great love for us and the Father's love for us to give the Son. Well, we are grateful to be with you and we trust that God will be glorified in our time together. I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 2. I'd like for us to look this morning in the second chapter of Philippians. I believe the last time I was with you, which was January of this year, uh, special fellowship time then and uh, especially dedication, I think, of the changes that have been made and recognizing God's goodness there. We, uh, we preached from Philippians chapter 1, I believe. And we want to turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2. And I'd like to speak with you from these words about the thought, down from His glory. Down from His glory. I want us to look together at verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2 especially in keeping with the season of the year. And we noted the uh, fact that the church building's dressed out in Christmas finery here and we've been singing as well some good Christmas carols of the season. I want us to think together about the Lord Jesus as He's presented here in these words of Philippians chapter 2, particularly to think of the great love that has already been sung about, testified of in song, the redeeming love of our Savior who came from the azure halls of heaven. We want to think together about that as Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks practically to God's people at Philippi, a church that he dearly loved, a church who had fellowshiped with him in the gospel for many years. And Paul, particularly in this portion, in this letter to the Philippians, is writing to them to thank them that they have blessed him once again and he's been involved in the activity of preaching the gospel. And he wants to acknowledge that. But as he does that, he speaks to them about some things that are on his heart. Let's begin reading there at verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. And again, we'll read down through verse 11 and we trust that our God would have had his own special blessing and his stamp and seal to his written word. Philippians 2 verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We trust today that our God would add His blessing, His own stamp and seal to His written word. May we just pause together to ask that of Him in prayer. Father, we unite our hearts in that name that is above every name the name that is far above all principality, power, and dominion, and every name that's named, the name of Jesus. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus today. Thank You for His shed blood. Thank You, Father, that we have the privilege through that blood of coming before You, sins forgiven. Father, thank You for the words that we've read that speak of our great Savior and of His great redeeming love. We ask You today, our Father, to bless Your Word. Father, may you magnify your Son as we think together today of how He came down from His glory. Thank you for that precious story. Father, bless it to our hearts. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. As we look together at these words of Philippians 2 again, we want to focus on verses 1 through 11. In doing so, we want to think together about the subject, down from His glory. Some of you will remember that there's a song that is written by that uh, title, Down from His Glory ever-living story. Our God and Savior came and Jesus was His name. Laid in a manger to His own a stranger. A man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Oh, how I love Him! How I adore Him! It's written according to what I understand on a Operatic Air from Italy, brother, I believe, written by Eduardo de Capua, I believe, de Capua. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but Brother Paul can straighten it out afterwards. But several songs have actually been sung to that tune, but that is the greatest of them there, I believe, because it speaks of our Savior who came down from His glory. Paul here, by inspiration, is telling God's people at Philippi about that great story, that living story of how our Savior came down from the glory that was His as God. But as he does that, he speaks in very practical terms to God's people about that. For he doesn't speak merely of our Savior's glorious station and how He stepped down here. He also speaks by way of application to us of how that can make an impact in our lives. I want you to notice that in those opening words of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, please. Paul speaks there to God's people. We could say verses 1 through 4, but it continues in verse 5, the first part. Paul speaks to God's people and asks you to notice the exhortation there. Paul speaks by way of practical word to God's people to exhort them along the lines of something I believe that all of us need to be reminded of. Because all of us, sadly, fail so often to have the spirit and attitude of our great Savior. We fail to have the heart 
that our Savior did. And I have to tell you, I don't have it myself all the time. In fact, a lot of times I see myself lacking in it. Notice what Paul says in verses 1 and following of Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. As Paul speaks here to God's people, he gives them a word of exhortation, a word about how they should be living practically in their Christian lives there at Philippi as those who were saved and in Christ Jesus saints of the Most High God, Paul wanted them to know how they ought to be living in fellowship with one another. As he gives this exhortation, I'd ask you to notice in verse 1 the foundation of the exhortation. Paul speaks practically to God's people and he lays a foundation of that exhortation that he gives. He says in verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. That is compassions. The, the Hebrews thought of the, of the emotions, and we do too, as being seated in the stomach. If somebody gets nervous, we don't say have, they have butterflies in their brain, do we? We don't say they have butterflies in their heart. They have butterflies where? In their stomach. Why? Because that's where we see the emotion so often reflected. And so it is that Paul speaks of compassion here as the bowels and mercies. But as Paul uses that word if, you'll notice four times it's found there in verse 1. If there be, if there be, if there be. This is the foundation of Paul's exhortation to the saints at, at Philippi. He's challenging them. And his foundation basically, if you will, I'd like to call it a rabbit punch. That is Paul's punching below the belt here. Yesterday I was watching some football and one of the fellas on the defense team, I believe, was called because he hit below the belly. If you will, here Paul's hitting below the belly. He's hitting where God's people are going to say, Oh, Paul, stop! Because he asked these saints at Philippi, if you found any consolation in Christ, if you found any comfort of love in Christ, if you found any fellowship of the Spirit in Christ, if you found any bowels and mercies, that is compassion in Christ, then do this. The reason I say that's hitting below the belt is because every saved person knows that's exactly what we found in Jesus Christ. What have I found in Him today? I'll tell you, I've found true consolation, everlasting consolation and a good hope through grace. What have I found? I've found comfort of love in Jesus Christ. I can't find it anywhere else in this old world, but oh, thank God I've found it in Christ. I've found the fellowship of the blessed Holy Spirit of God. I sensed it this morning as we worshiped together. The fellowship of the Spirit of the living God. I've known that in Christ. And as well I've found true compassion, true bowels and mercies through God's dear Son. What Paul does here is lay the foundation for the believers there at Philippi. And he says, if you found these things and experienced them in Jesus Christ, now this is what I want you to do. 
Notice what he says. The focus of the exhortation there in verses 2 through 4, he says to God's people, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What's the focus of Paul's exhortation here? Well, it's an attitude of heart that every one of us need. And even if we have some of it, every one of us need more of it. And that attitude of heart is humility. Or as verse 3 puts it, lowliness of mind. You see in verse 2, Paul calls God's people to unity. He tells God's people, fulfill my joy as one who had planted the church there at Philippi, as one who carried those people in his heart, as one who thanked God for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul wrote in chapter 1. Paul's heart was that God people would fulfill the joy of his soul by going on in grace and by continuing to do God's will but to do it in a united way and so it is Paul says that you be like minded having the same love being of one accord and of one mind I know you've all heard what the, what the Bible car is haven't you it's an accord they were all in one accord right Well, here, in effect, Paul says to God's people, that's what I want you to have. I want you to be of one accord and of one mind, having the same love, love for Jesus Christ, love for God the Father, love for the Holy Spirit, love for one another, love for souls. I want you to be possessed of that. And one thing that will help us to have that kind of unity. And earlier in chapter 1, as Paul closes out the chapter, he's talked about that matter of unity. He's told God's people that he wants them to stand firm in the faith of the gospel. And here he continues that theme. But here, the focus of his exhortation is on something that will help us to have true unity. And that is humility. Lowliness of mind. Peter over in 1 Peter chapter 5 tells God's people, Yea, let every one of you be clothed with humility. You know what the best dressed Christian's going to wear in 2005? You know what the best dressed Christian's going to wear next year? Humility. That's the best thing you and I can put on. Loneliness of mind. Not that kind of pride that marks us so often. Not the kind of pride that marked the devil when five times in Isaiah 14 he said, I will, I'll be like the Most High. Not the kind of pride that marked our first parents when they stretched forth their hand to take of that forbidden fruit and sinned against God because Satan had told them, Ye shall be like God. Same lie that he believed. See, that's our problem so often, isn't it? Pride. So often we're lifted up with pride. And what Paul admonishes God's people about here is, have a mind that's lowly. Have a mind that's humble. Have a mind that is, that is not marked by vain glory and the strife of trying to make the way myself, trying to climb the ladder, trying to, trying to make a name for myself. No, be content to leave it to God. So often, brothers and sisters, I'm afraid we, we find ourselves, even in Christian circles, we find ourselves marked by pride and not, not marked by humility. 
I was thinking this past week, looking back over years, that God's blessed me to preach. And I thank God for His goodness to me in the course of, of over 20 years and more of ministry now. But I was looking at it and I was looking and thinking, Lord, have I been preaching all this time just to make a name for myself? And I thankfully can say that's not been the case. But I can also say there's been some pride in it. And I have to say, Lord, forgive me. Because there's one thing that ought to motivate my heart. And what is that? The glory of my Redeemer. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm to be about. Not making a name for myself, but making a name for Him. Because His is the only name worthy to be proclaimed. His is the name to which every knee will bow as we see here. So it is, Paul tells God's people to be marked by humility, loneliness of mind, not looking out for yourself, but looking out for one another. Not seeking to promote yourself, but seeking to lift up one another in love. As Paul speaks of this by way of exhortation, in verses 5 through 8, Paul gives to God's people the example of humility. He gives us the greatest example that has ever been. Now if you look later in this chapter, we see Paul referring to himself in verses 16 through 18. Paul's burden to be offered on the sacrifice of the faith of the Philippians and how he rejoiced in that. That's humility. Paul's an example of humility. We see later after Paul, verses 19 through 24, Paul mentions Timothy and how Timothy looked out not for his own things, but for the things of Jesus Christ. And Paul could say, I have no man like-minded. We see even further on in the words there that follow, Paul mentions Epaphroditus in verses 25 and following, and how Epaphroditus was sick near unto death for the Philippians. That's humility. But those aren't the greatest examples of humility right there. The greatest example of humility is the one we see in verses 5 through 8 when Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The greatest example of humility is that example of humility of Him who stepped down from the portals of glory, from those azure halls of heaven, down to be born as a man of the Virgin Mary, to be born of a birth that no other man of Adam's race has ever experienced without the aid, instrumentality, or help of man. Such he was born. Born to do what? Born to die. And so it is that Paul speaks about our Savior as the example of humility. Thank God He's our forerunner, if you will, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6. And in humility, He's our forerunner as well. He's our forerunner in so many ways, but He's our forerunner as our example. He's more than example, as these words will say. We needed more than an example. We have Him as our example, but we needed Him to be our Savior. And in His humility, He became our Savior as well as our example. Notice the words there. Verses 5 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice that. 
Notice the great humility of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. He is our example. He is our Savior as well, though. I'd ask you to notice as we think about the example of our forerunner. I'd ask you to think with me, please, first of all, about His dignity. Verse 6. His dignity. We read there of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery here means something to be grasped or something to be held on to. The idea is that our Savior did not consider His equality with God something that He must keep hold of. But rather He was willing to let it go. All the prerogatives He had as God. All of the worship that was His. All of the glory that was due Him as God. He was willing to say, Father, I'll lay that by. And I'll fulfill your plan. I'll take a body to myself. And that's what the Father had said in the words of Psalm 40. Cited there in Hebrews 10 it is said, Lo, in the volume of the book it's written of me. I come, O God, to do thy will. Sacrifice and burnt offering and offering for sins. Thou, offerings for sin thou desirest not. But a body hast thou prepared for me. And our Savior was willing to take that body. He was willing by the womb of a, of a virgin, not one who had had relations with man, but in a supernatural way. As Isaiah 7, 14 had declared, Brother Paul referred to it in the Sunday school hour, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. That truth of Isaiah 7.14 is here testified in the words of verse 6. The dignity of the Son of God. Who was that laid in that major stall? None other than God Himself. None other than one who can be called Emmanuel. God with us. Who was He? Being in the form of God. What did He not consider robbery? Being equal with God. Why? Because He was and is. In His glory as God, He is the eternal God. God the Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, and the blessed Trinity of God. In those blessed persons that make up the blessed Godhead, our Lord Jesus is eternal God. That's His dignity. Now we look here at these words of what Paul says in verse 6 by inspiration who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Many who have studied the Scripture here see in these words a contrast between Adam and the second Adam or the last Adam, the second man. We have a contrast because where was Adam in Genesis chapters 2 and 3? Placed in paradise by God. And what did he do? He sinned in order to become what? Satan lied to him equal with God. But what did our Savior do? Adam acted in pride. But our Savior in humility, who was equal with God, said, I'll become a man. Notice the contrast. Man saying, I'll be like God and failing. God saying, I'll become man and succeeding for our salvation. And there we see the grace of God. His dignity. Who was He? Who is that one in yonder stall? He's Mary's son, yet Lord of all. That's who He is. He's the great Savior. 
He is God Himself. That's His dignity. But notice verse 7, His descent. As we read of how He was in the form of God, He had equality with God. We see His descent in verse 7. He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Down from His glory He came. He descended to this world. He who had the praise of angels. He whom seraphim veiled their faces before. He descended down into this low ground of sorrow. He was born of Mary's womb so that He might be the Savior. And we see that descent, don't we? We think about it at this Christmas season. What was He laid in? A golden cradle, certainly. If the Son of God were born to man, certainly He would be laid in a golden cradle as befits His glory, wouldn't He? But no, where was He laid? In a manger. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough for animals. Where was He laid? The humble Son of God. The Son of God born lowly. When his parents, when Je- I should say his stepfather, Joseph and Mary went to offer the sacrifice for him, what does Luke 2 say they offered? They offered a pair of turtle doves or pigeons according to the law. That was the law. That was what the law allowed for the poorer people. You see, he wasn't born to a rich family. He was born to a poor family. Worked as a carpenter in his father and in Joseph, his stepfather's shop. What was he doing? He was descending. That glory that was his, he gladly left. Remember the words there of Hebrews chapter 12? The writer tells us, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, doing what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him did what? Laid aside all the glory that was His. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Here we think about the glory that was our Savior's and about the descent that He made. You know, there's a Christmas song that's popular this season of the year. Some of you will remember it. You'll hear it on the radio even. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen when the snow lay round about, clean and crisp and even. They tell about that good king over of Eastern Europe years ago. They tell about Wenceslas. That sometimes he would go out and he would chop wood in the king's forest after putting on his clothes of a peasant. He'd go out and chop wood. And one time he was found by the king's warden of the forest and he was beaten because they didn't recognize him. I've got a greater story than that about another king. A king who took off his royal robes of glory. A king who laid aside all of the prerogatives that were his, his God. He took to himself our humanity. Wrapped himself up in our flesh. Sin apart, thank God, never sinned. And what did he do? He was more than beaten. This was His world. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. He was in the world and the world was made by Him. Yet the world knew Him not. What happened? He came into this world and He was beaten. That's what we see in verse verse 8. His death. Notice it there please. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death 
even the death of the cross. We see His dignity. We see His descent. But we see finally His death. Why? Because in His descent from His dignity, He was not merely becoming a man for becoming a man's sake. There was a reason for His incarnation. And that was His death. For you see, in order for sinners of Adam's race to be saved, someone had to pay the price. You and I could never pay it for all eternity in the lake of fire. If we went to hell for our sin and paid the penalty, we'd never get out of hell paying the penalty. We owe that much to God's justice. In order then for sinners to be saved, what had to happen? Jesus Christ had to pay the price. He had to pay the price, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And that's what Paul speaks of here. Our Savior, who had humbled Himself, been found in fashion as a man, humbled Himself even more as He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Obedient unto what? Obedient unto the Father's will. Obedient unto the Father's plan. Obedient unto the Father's purpose that the Son would lay Himself down, the Good Shepherd for His sheep, that He'd give Himself for us, that He'd take the place of sinners, that He'd be substituted and sacrificed, both high priest and offering. And by that, eternal life might come through the work of His cross and through His shed blood. And so He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh, this message is good news for sinners this morning. I remember when God privileged me to preach up in York, Pennsylvania. We were there from 90 to 95. Some of you may remember when we left. And Brother Paul was up there. Actually, we took him on when he was with us in our missions conference up there at Westside. We had the privilege in ministering there at Westside and having a family in the church. Family of Mother Evelyn Sutherland. I called her Mother Sutherland. She had 12 children. Six boys and six girls. Many of them came to hear the gospel when we preached there. Her husband John had been saved late in life. He died at 79 about four years before his death. The Lord had saved him. He had been a hater of the gospel. When his sons would come around to witness to him, he pulled a knife out on one of them, chased them out of the house. They lived over in what we called the Sutherland Holler. When his son David was going to pray to receive Christ, he told him, Don't do it, Dave! Don't do it! He was antagonistic. His family continued to pray for him. God began to deal with his heart and conviction. One day at his house, he told one of his sons, Raymond, he said, Raymond, I'm afraid to die. Raymond told his mom, Mom, we're going outside. Keep everybody inside and pray, pray, pray. They went outside. Well, Brother Raymond had learned a whole lot of verses in Evangelism Explosion down in the church he was in in Florida, in Orlando. But he said every one of those verses flew out of his mind when he got outside with his dad. He said the only verse that he could remember was John 3.16. He quoted that to his dad. Most of you know it, I know. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as he remembered that verse, all the others gone, Raymond shared it with his dad and he explained it to him when he got to that part. Should not perish. Brother Sutherland said, that means I don't have to go to hell, doesn't it? And he said, that's right, Dad. That's what it means. Brother Sutherland called on the Lord and was saved that day. For four years, his life was a testimony. I'd go by and see him and you could witness the peace of heart in his life. The peace at his home because of the grace of God that he brought to that family. God had been so gracious. But what was the good news that Raymond shared? The news of one who gave his only son. Why? That whoever believes in him would not perish. Doesn't have to go to hell but has everlasting life. That's the death He died. You see, He took the place of sinners. The place that should have been mine. He took. He took what I should have had because He was God. He could drain damnation dry in those three hours, those six hours on the cross. Those three hours of darkness. He could do what I could not do for all eternity in hell. Why? Because He's infinite God and His glorious person is the God-man. And so it is that He did that. And Paul speaks of the example of humility. Our Lord Jesus is the one who's also our Savior through the death that He died for sinners. One further thing that I'd ask you to notice there in those words of verses 9-11, through 11, and that is the exaltation. You know, somebody has said the way up is down. We forget that, don't we? We think in the world the way up is up. Climb and scrape and fight and kick and scratch and claw. But no, God has appointed it. The way up is down. And we see that in our Savior, don't we? How has He been exalted to the highest place? Well, it was His originally, but as man, He's now been exalted by what? The way down. And what has happened according to the Scripture here? Notice verses 9 and following. Wherefore, that is for this reason. I was preaching up in Luray, Virginia last month. And while I was up there, I mentioned in another passage of Scripture the word therefore. And I mentioned that rule of Bible study that's always good to remember. And I say it this way. Whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore in the Bible, go back to see what it's there for. But the brother up there, the pastor that I was preaching for, he taught his people this. I liked it. Why for is the wherefore, therefore. (laughs) That makes it pretty easy, doesn't it? And whenever you read the Bible and you see that wherefore, therefore, ask yourself, why for is the wherefore, therefore. Paul says, wherefore, and that takes us back to his descent. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see the truth that Jesus is Lord and all will bow. Now realize that some have said 
It speaks of should here, verse 10, and should in verse 11. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture in Isaiah 45 and also in Romans chapter 14, it's a shall. It's not just a should. It's a shall. That is a will of indicative mood. It means it'll be a reality in other words. It's going to happen. He's been highly exalted. All will bow. All will confess. Every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. What salvation? Salvation's bowing ahead of time. Salvation saying, Lord Jesus, I know You're Lord and I don't want to wait till the great judgment throne, white throne judgment to bow. I want to bow now and own Your Lordship right now. I want to bow and confess Your Lord right now. I will eventually. I want to do it now as one of Your saved ones. I want to do it now as one of those who owned You as Lord, who confessed You to be who You are, the great Lord. The sinner's Savior. The sinner's substitute and friend, but sinner's Lord too. I bow. You see, salvation's found in owning His Lord. Brother Rolf Barnard used to say it well. He'd say, don't tell me who your Savior is. Tell me who your Lord is. I'll tell you who your Savior is. And it's still so. You see, He's Lord. And we bow to Him as Lord. You see, all will bow. You will bow. I will bow. But oh, that we could bow now. That we could throw up the white flag of surrender and cry, I yield, I yield. For you see, salvation is found in owning Him as Lord. In bowing to this lovely, altogether lovely Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see, we will bow. The story is told of Julian the Apostate, one of the emperors of Rome, who lived after Christianity had come to the empire. Julian was called the Apostate because he fought the Gospel. He hated Christ. When Julian came to the end of his days, as he lay on his deathbed, before he died, he uttered these words, Thou hast won, O Galilean. Who was the Galilean? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Galilee. What did He confess? Thou hast won, O Galilean. What was He saying? He was acknowledging the truth that every sinner will. I'm afraid He acknowledged it too late though in His case. Thou hast won, O Galilean, your Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, the hymn writer said it well when he said, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at His feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown Him Lord of all. Will you today own Him as Lord of all? Have you done that? Oh, by grace I trust you have. For no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. But oh, today, if you haven't trusted Christ, today, would you own Him as Lord, go to Him as a sinner, confess Him and be Lord, trusting Him as Savior, looking to His shed blood. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for the One who came down from His glory who is not only our great example, but also our great Savior. 
Father, I pray You'd bless Your Word to our dear brothers and sisters and friends here today. Thank You for them, Lord. Thank You for the privilege of being with them. And Lord, thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We gladly own Your Son as Lord now. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge You. May You be magnified in this place by Your Spirit's power. We pray in Your worthy name with thanksgiving. Amen.